All right, if you got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. Once I get there and get settled, then we will uh, we'll begin. All right. I can get this going where I'm not going to drop something on myself. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. All right. Does that work? Ooh, all right. All right, cool. Well, uh, I have two goals for this weekend, and so let me share those with you, and then we'll get into the lesson for tonight. So you can see our theme uh, this weekend is with Christ, and uh, I'm actually going to credit Chance with coming up with that because I couldn't come up with one. He was like, hey, by the way, your theme is with Christ. And I was like, okay, great. That's helpful. So uh, with Christ, and, and really what I want to do with that is two things. One is I want us to walk through, we're going to walk through four different stories from the gospel narratives, four different interactions Jesus has and I want us to see the with Christ part, and that is how does Jesus relate to us in our lives now in similar or different ways than he did with people he interacts with in the Gospels, okay? So that's the with Christ aspect. But with each of these, I want us to look really hard in these stories at being like Christ, okay? That is, that if you are a Christian, then you desire to be like him. You desire to imitate him in all his righteousness. And so how can we... And imitate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we see him here in these gospel interactions. So that's it. So we're going to have with Christ applications and we'll have some like Christ applications and we'll bounce back and forth between those two. Okay, so let me go and pray and then we will start into our lesson for tonight. God, you are good and kind and we're so thankful for your word and we're thankful for what it teaches us and how we can learn to be more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless us tonight, uh, bless me to be clear as I explain the word and that it would be convicting to us that we would desire to love you even more and that we would reflect even Christ's heart of compassion for uh, desperate and hopeless people. So we just thank you for the time tonight and pray that it would honor you and be for our good. For all this in your name, amen. I want you to think of a time in your life when you are, were especially desperate. Not desperate for a date, sorry, that probably, that, uh, don't, that doesn't apply. Well, y'all deal with that when you get home with chance, okay? Desperate in the sense that you, you didn't understand your circumstances. You didn't know what was going on, and, and there was lots of life coming at you. You felt overwhelmed, and you felt like you didn't have a way out. You felt like you were in dire straits. You were hopeless, or, or as our favorite Anne Shirley would say, you were in the depths of despair, okay? You're welcome, ladies. I am cultured. Think of a time in your life when that happened and think about how you thought about it, right? Because when we're in situations like that, we're tempted to have lots of thoughts and questions that are frankly not biblical, right? We're tempted to think things like, God doesn't know what's going on, God doesn't care about me, and so on. Tonight, in our passage in Luke chapter 7, what I want us to look at is two stories, actually two young men who are probably close to y'all's age, that Jesus interacted with, and really Jesus used as a platform to display, one, his amazing power, but also his abundant compassion for people. And so, let's, uh, let's say this for our theme tonight, see if this will come up. So our theme for tonight, if you have something to write on, that's great. If you don't, then you can just remember, sorry, I'm going too quickly here. There. All right. So our theme for tonight, when we are at our most hopeless... Jesus has compassion on us. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read the first 17 verses in these two accounts that go back to back, okay? Luke chapter 7. When he had completed all his discourse, 
in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. So you saw as we went through, there's really two stories that we're going to cover tonight. And we're going we're gonna to outline it this way. The first section we're going to call Jesus' compassion on the desperate. Jesus' compassion on the desperate for the first ten verses. And notice that the first part of the story comes when we are in desperate need. Look at verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Now, if you had been reading through the Gospel of Luke, when you got to Luke chapter 6, you would have read through Jesus' teaching, which we now call the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. It's in Luke chapter 6. And then it says here in verse 7 that when he was done with this teaching, done with teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he came down from the mountain and he went to Capernaum. In Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people were amazed at his teaching. And Matthew 8 tells us that large crowds were following him wherever he went. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, followed by a large crowd, and goes a few miles, maybe not even that far, into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, uh, you may or may not know, is, is a city on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's not anything overly impressive, not a big metropolis, but it's a, a normal-sized city, the, mostly helped by the fishing industry because it's on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and so we know that Simon Peter had a house there, and, and we see that. But also, uh, it's apparently large enough to have a garrison of Roman soldiers. The way that we know that is because in verse 2, it tells us that there was a centurion there. A centurion who had a slave. A slave who was precious or highly regarded by him, and that slave was sick and about to die. Now, I... I like to use my sanctified imagination, my, my pastor calls it, and I like to really try and get myself in the story. What, what's going on? What does it look like? 
And so I'll tell you what it looks like in my head. And you can just, you know, this is thus saith Joshua, not thus saith the Lord. Okay, so take it for what it's worth. But I just imagine, you know, there's a, there's a dark, cool room and, and there's a young man laying there and, and he's sweating and moaning and he's miserable and he's clearly in pain. But for some reason, he's lying very still. The master is anxious, pacing up and down. Another man may be attending the sick man. Let's him know that there's no way the boy can last that much longer. You see, he says it's a centurion's slave. But later in this story and in Matthew, the centurion doesn't call him a slave. He calls him literally my boy. Probably this young man, again, probably close to y'all's age, was the personal manservant to this centurion. He was uh, what the English would call a valet, right? A personal butler. He was with the centurion all day, every day. They'd come to have a close relationship. And, and it says here that he was highly regarded by him, or more literally, probably, he was precious to him. This was not just one of his hundred staffers that he's got wandering around the complex. No, this is his boy. And in this context, the, the centurion, you guys probably know, a Roman centurion was a Roman officer in the army who would command up to 100 soldiers, probably not that many, but at least a couple dozen when they were not in wartime. And so this centurion is not the most highly paid, most famous person ever in the world, but in the city the size of Capernaum, he was probably one of the most powerful men in the city. And he has this young man who serves with him every day, and it says the young man is very sick. The parallel account of Matthew Matthew chapter 8 tells us this, this young man is paralyzed, and it says he is fearfully tormented. That's a way of saying he is in an incredible amount of pain. Now, before I was a pastor, I actually served several years as an ICU nurse. I've seen a lot of very interesting and very horrible things. But one thing that I saw is that paralysis and pain often go together. The reason for that is that they're both essentially neurological issues. They have to do with your brain and spinal cord. Okay? Now the question is, what happened to this young man that he is paralyzed and in incredible pain? Well, we don't know for sure. There's a couple of options. One, he could have had some kind of trauma, or that's a fancy word for injury. He could have had something hit his head very hard. He could have broken his neck or his back, something along those lines. Pain and paralysis also go together when cancer invades your brain or your spinal cord or something along those lines. Or there's also different various neurological diseases and syndromes like Guillain-Barre syndrome or something like that that causes widespread paralysis, pain, and numbness. We don't really know. What we do know is that it was terminal. And it was terminal urgently. Notice that it says he was sick and he was about to die. So the question for you and question for me is, have you ever been quite this desperate? This man had his personal servant on the brink of death. And so, as it would happen, he makes an earnest request. When we are in desperate need, we need to make an earnest request. But notice we can't make any earnest request. We'll see here that he makes an earnest request with humility. With humility. Verse 3 says, When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When he heard about Jesus, how did he hear? I don't know. Was it one of the soldiers in his battalion? Was it one of his other servants? 
We know that Jesus had cast out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum a few chapters before this. We know that he saved uh, Peter's mother-in-law from a high fever, remember, after that. Had he heard about those things? Well, it doesn't seem like he'd heard about them before now, but maybe now that they're in this situation, one of the servants finally bucks up the courage to say, I think you should ask Jesus. (laughs) So, being a Roman, he's not going to go himself. He sends for the Jewish elders. He sends them to this man Jesus to entreat on his behalf. Now, just so you remember, in the Gospels, we're going to talk a lot about the Pharisees tomorrow, but we always think that the Jewish leadership, and we think they're all, they're like, it's like the same eight guys that are in every story. Okay, That's probably not a good idea. The, the idea is that even in each local town, there were different, different groups of these men, and here these men aren't even noted to be Pharisees, they're just the Jewish elders. These are, are the respected men in the community who lead in the synagogue and, and the worship there. And so, the the Roman centurion apparently has a good relationship with these men, we'll see in a minute, and he sends them on his behalf to Jesus. And he asks them to go to Jesus and ask him to come to his house and to save the life of his slave. It's a very interesting, unique word that is actually used a lot in Acts when Paul is on his missionary journeys and, and he gets shipwrecked. You remember in Acts 27 when he's on his way to Rome? And he gets shipwrecked, and it says that at the end of Acts 27, that they were brought safely to land, and when they had been brought safely through, they found the island. (laughs) This centurion is in the worst storm of his life, and he says, I need you to bring my boy safely through. Go, get Jesus and tell him that my slave doesn't have time. He needs to be brought safely to the shore. There's an application in here for us, and and you're going to think I'm really, really silly for this because it's really obvious. The question is, when you are sick, do you pray? Do you pray and ask Jesus to come and help you when you are sick, when you are, are in situations that are hard? When your friends and your family are sick or in desperate situations, do you pray and ask God for comfort for them, for healing for them? Matthew Henry says, The centurion begged that Christ would come and heal his servant. We may now, by faithful and fervent prayer, apply ourselves to Christ in heaven and ought to do so when sickness is in our families. For Christ is still the great physician. Yeah, go to the doctor. Yeah, take a Tylenol. Whatever you need to do. But but remember that someone is in control of your health. It's not you. It's not your doctor. It's not anyone else. It's Jesus is the great physician. Are we praying? about the normal things of life. Verse 4, the elders apparently respond. It says, They came to Jesus and they earnestly implored Him, saying He is worthy. They earnestly implored Him. They came to Jesus and, and they tried to express to Him how important this was both how important it was and how urgent it was. There wasn't time to lose. They, they earnestly, eagerly implored Him. And notice what they said saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to Him. This man is deserving of what you should do. He is deserving for you to make this available, to answer His request. Notice why they say that. Why is He worthy in their minds? Why is He deserving of this? Verse 5, For He loves our nation, and it was He who built our synagogue. 
Apparently, over time, this Roman centurion had gotten to know the people of the city and gotten to love them and, and have an affection for them and their culture and even something about their God. Apparently, he had financed and, and uh, been the producer of their synagogue there in the city. And they appreciate him because he appreciates them. It says, he loves our people and he built us our synagogue. Now, recognize that the Jews, there is no love lost between the Jews and the Romans. They don't like him because he's who he is. They like him because of what he has done. So the Jews, they, they tell Jesus that this man is worthy. They go to bat for this guy. Here's an interesting application from that. If you needed someone to go on your behalf, would they? <laughs> Are you kind and generous enough to other people that if you were in a situation where you needed help, they would go to bat for you? Interesting thought, right? But here's the, here's the light Christ application. Think about where Jesus is in this. He shows up in the city, followed by this huge crowd. He's met by these Jewish elders. They ask this request, and they say, you need to come do this because this guy is really, really deserving of your help. Now, you guys are all good Bible scholars. I know that chance teaches you well. Do you think that biblically, spiritually, this guy is actually deserving of anything? The answer is... No. He's a sinner, right? He's a sinner like all of us. None of us deserve anything but God's punishment for our sins, and yet God is good and kind. Now, Jesus is God. He has perfect theology. He hears them say, this guy is very deserving because he gave us stuff. Do you think that he sees through that bad doctrine? Everybody can say, yeah, Jesus probably knew. But the question is, what is Jesus? how does Jesus respond to that? Well, we find out in the next verse that Jesus agrees. My caution to you all, my encouragement to you, my application from that is, it's easy for us who love the Bible to always find the small doctrinal theological misunderstanding detail and highlight that and not go and serve people. Okay, Be careful that even when people who are young in the faith or frankly even unbelievers who don't know what they're talking about say things that are wrong, choose your battles. Okay? Jesus chose in this moment to not say, actually, that's horrible theology. He chose to serve. Okay? And by the way, just so you know, Jesus does call out the bad theology at times. We're going to talk about that a lot tomorrow. <clears throat> but notice verse 6. Jesus agrees. He starts on his way with them. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 8, he actually verbalizes to them, I will come and heal him. Jesus is committed. He's going. So there's the application for being like Christ. Are you willing to go out of your way, inconvenience yourself to serve and love other people? He agrees to heal the man's servant, not, by the way, because the centurion is worthy. He knows better than that. But why? Because he's good. Because he's Jesus. He, he has a heart of compassion. He wants to serve. And so he says, I will come and heal him. And then verse 6 goes on, He was not far from the house when the centurion sent his friends, so the elders are already with Jesus, bringing him back to the house. The centurion, I think, this is, again, sanctified imagination, I think Jesus, or the centurion either sees Jesus coming or hears him coming because he's close to the house, and he gets nervous. <laughs> and so he sends out the friends he's got in the house, sends them out into the street to stop Jesus and say, No, 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 Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 7, For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. <laughs> the centurion sees him coming, 
and gets really intimidated that Jesus is coming. We can't have Jesus coming to our house, okay? I don't know if any of y'all's moms are like this, where somebody's coming over, the pastor's coming over for lunch, and she's like, everybody pick up, right? Okay, that, but like a million times. Jesus is coming to the house, and he says, no, I I can't handle it. I, I am not worthy for Jesus to come in my house. In fact, he even says through his friends, this is why I didn't even come to you in the first place. I wasn't worthy to see you. This guy is a centurion. He is a man who is used to authority. We're going to see that in a minute. He is a real grown adult man. And he can't bring himself to look Jesus in the eye. So my question for you and me is, do we sometimes think that we are more worthy than we should be? Do we sometimes just roll into the throne room of heaven and kick off our shoes and tell Jesus exactly what he needs to do for us because we are that important? By the way, we're not. Do you recognize your utter unworthiness before Jesus? Do you recognize that you need to be humble, properly humble before him? The centurion made this earnest request to him, but it was with intense humility because he recognized who Jesus was and he recognized who he was. But what's interesting is his humility is actually not what Jesus highlights. It's actually his faith. Notice at the end of verse 7, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He recognizes, this this pagan man recognizes that Jesus wields the power of God. Okay, Deuteronomy 32.39 tells us that God says, I, I am he, there is no God besides me. It is I, God says, it is I who puts to death and gives life. It is I who wounds and I who heals. 1 Samuel 2.6, Yahweh kills and makes alive. Psalm 107, 19 and 20. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them. You know, the one person in the entire universe who can just heal people, it's God. Okay? The centurion looks at Jesus and says, if you say the right thing, my boy will be healed. And notice how he knows this. Look at verse 8. I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. He says, look, when I tell my soldiers to do something, they obey immediately. Do you know why? Not because I am important, but because I am under bigger authority, right? He says, I am a man placed under authority. They are afraid of my superiors getting involved, and so they obey me. He says, Jesus, what I've heard about you is you tell things to happen, and they do, because you carry with you the power of God. Jesus Christ is God, and he recognizes this. If you do this, this will happen. If you say the word, my boy will be healed. Now, what's interesting is the reason the centurion didn't want Jesus coming into his house was his humility. The reason he could let Jesus not come into his house was his faith. Right? He says, you don't need to come. You stand right there and say the word 
and it'll happen. One of the commentaries, William Hendrickson, he kind of paraphrases this and he says, Jesus, you say go and the disease flees. You say come and the health arrives. You say do this and my boy's body obeys you. Centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant without a word, with a word. So, application for you and me. When we are in desperate, dire situations, do you actually, honestly, in your heart of hearts, believe that Jesus can fix it? He can. And I know that you would all say that if I asked you. But when you're in that spot, and it feels like nothing's going to go right, no matter what you choose, and you can't get out of this, do you know that Jesus can actually do it? He can. Did you know that He can solve your most difficult problems with a word? He can. You see, faith, as the Bible describes it, is confidence that God will do what He says He will do. Confidence in God's Word. And so the question is, do, do you have confidence in God such that it affects your everyday decisions? Do you have confidence in God and in His Word that it affects the way that you control your emotions? <laughs> Do you have confidence in God and in the Scriptures such that it comes out in the way you speak about your life? Needs to. Has to. He says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. We bring an earnest request with humility and in faith. And Jesus compassionately responds. He compassionately responds. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. He was amazed. He Jesus was struck speechless by this guy. And he turns around and says to the crowd, all these people that just heard him speak, turns around and says, just so you know, not in all you Israelites have I found somebody like this. Not in all of Israel have I found such great faith. Now, was this centurion exercising faith that he came up with on his own? No, we know that's not true. Biblically, faith is a gift to us like everything else is from God. But when we take the faith that God has given us and we exercise it according to His Word, it is an honor to Him. It's pleasing to Him. It's glorifying to God when we exercise the faith that we've been given. And so Jesus looks at this man and He praises him for living by His faith, by acting according to what He knew to be true. So how can we be like Christ in this? Do you recognize and praise the faith of others? When you see your friends and your family and, and the people that you interact with and they are actually exercising great faith, do you say, hey, that's honoring to the Lord. Keep it up. Do that. You know, one of the points made in this passage is that the people of faith are the people of God, not just the people of ethnic Israel, right? He says, not in Israel have I found such great faith. This guy who's a Gentile, is one of my people because of his faith. We need to be careful that we recognize and praise faith in God. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Notice verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Apparently, sometime during this, Jesus actually completed the request that the man brought. It's not big, it's not flashy. He didn't do anything miraculous to the eye, but he did to that boy's body. 
In Matthew, it says, he said to the centurion through his friends, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And at that moment, the servant was healed. One commentary said, did Jesus go beyond even his great faith and heal without so much as a word? You see, the centurion said, just say the word and my boy will be healed. And Jesus says, go, it's already done. Both as a show of his great power and as a reward for this man's humility and faith, he heals the man's boy. I want you to see in here, Jesus has compassion on a man in a desperate situation. He doesn't have to help him. He's not obligated in any way. But his heart goes out to this man who is miserable, and he gives him exactly what he asks. And yet, you and I, when we're in our worst situations of our lives, when we feel completely overwhelmed, we don't even remember to pray and ask Jesus for help. Why not? Do we think he's not going to listen? Do we think he doesn't know? Do we think he doesn't care? He cares. He is a God of compassion and tender heart. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, Joshua, but listen, I'm beyond desperate. Because the desperate situation, the answers, the prayers didn't come. The answers didn't come. Yeah, I was desperate, and then I found out it actually was cancer. I was desperate, and my loved one did die. I was desperate, and I did lose my job. I was desperate, and I did fail out of that class. So what now? Well, in God and His Spirit's perfect wisdom, we get another scenario that it speaks exactly to that. Okay? So now... We're not just talking about Jesus' compassion on the desperate. We're talking about Jesus' compassion on the despairing. What happens when you're one step removed from desperate? Well, it says that Jesus, after maybe just a couple days or a couple weeks, travels to a small village called Nain, about 25 miles away. And in a divinely appointed, air quotes, coincidence, Jesus has this encounter. So this time we're going to say, what happens? When we are in despair. Well, verse 11, soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Verse 12, as he approached the gate of the city. Coincidence, right? A large crowd following Jesus, approaching another large crowd coming out of the city of Nain at the gate of the city. One crowd is being led by Jesus, the other crowd is being led by a single woman. And it says a dead man was being carried out. A dead man carried out of the city, the front of a funeral procession. Apparently, the dead man was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This doesn't communicate well to us in our day and age, but in that time, being a widow without a male relative meant that her life was unofficially over. (laughs) She had nothing left. She already was a widow, and now her only son has died. She comes out of the city weeping at the front of a funeral procession. All hope that she had was gone. There was a sizable crowd with her, but functionally she was alone in a crowded room, right? One commentary says, It's not surprising that no one asked Jesus to restore the mourning widow what she had lost. Why? Because the case is absolutely hopeless. What are you going to do now? 
She's already a widow and she's lost her son. But the commentary goes on. Our attention shouldn't be too exclusively fixed on the widow and her only son. Instead, it should be concentrated on God's only son. Because when he steps into the picture, can the death of an earthly son really be considered hopeless? Another commentary said, two only sons meet. One was alive, destined to die. The other dead, but destined to live. And so Jesus compassionately responds. First we see his compassion. Nope, I am too far ahead. Here we see his compassion in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. He saw her. In Exodus chapter 3, God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. Listen, I am aware of their sufferings. That's one of the lies that Satan tells us when we are despairing, right? That God doesn't know, that he can't see it. And that's wrong. It's a lie. The Bible says that God sees, that God sees what is going on. The Lord came up and he saw her. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. God is not unaware of what's going on in your life. The Lord sees. Next in verse 13, it says he felt compassion for her. Uh, he, he had pity or it literally says his heart went out to her. This is the same compassion when in Luke chapter 10, it talks about the Samaritan who had compassion on the one by the road. Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son comes home, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 32 tells us that God is the one who has compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Jesus expressing God's heart for this woman has compassion. His heart goes out to her. Warren Wearsby says, Compassion has been defined sometimes as your pain in my heart. What pain our Lord must have felt as He ministered from place to place. What if you, like Jesus, could perfectly feel the right emotion for every scenario? And you walk around and you see nothing but people who are struggling and suffering under the weight of a sin-cursed world. How His heart must have broken for them. He saw her, he felt compassion for her, I love this, and he said to her, do not weep. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Psalm 103.14 says, God himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He gets it. He understands how weak we are. And yet, Jesus walks up to this woman who has tears running down her face in the front of her son's coffin, and he looks her in the face and he says, Don't cry. Don't cry. Why? One, because he's there. Compassion for her. She doesn't need to weep. And two, she needs to wipe her eyes because he's about to do something. Okay? So the question is, 
When you have nothing left, do you know that Jesus' heart goes out to you? you? You don't need to cry. You can cry. It's okay. But you don't need to cry. You don't need to despair because Jesus alone is in control and his heart is there with you. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly about Jesus' heart. And he said this, Yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes. Yes, he's the one who ca- whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear. Yes, he is a mighty teacher. But the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it. He says it's impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, or exaggerated. Jesus' heart went out to this woman. And the question for you and me is, if you are a Christian, does your heart move like this? Because if you see people in desperate situations and your only real thought is, glad that wasn't me, you are not like your Savior. Christ's heart went out to her in her despair. Do you feel compassion for the people that you love when they are in desperate situations and they are despairing over loss? Do you feel compassion for the people that you don't know that are in those situations? Or this is the hardest one. Do you feel compassion for your opponents and people you are opposed to when they're in these situations? Jesus' heart went out. He felt compassion for her. But in the next two verses, we see his power. Verse 14. (laughs) This is awesome. He came up. And touched the coffin. So he walked, he's, talk, he's talking to the lady. He says, looks at her in the face. Don't weep. He walks behind her. He puts his hand on the coffin. Just so you know, a gasp runs through the crowd. Does anybody know why? Okay. Numbers 19 is very, very clear. That if you touch a dead body, you touch a grave, or you touch anything in between, you are unclean for a week. Okay? Jesus walks up, and he touches the coffin reasonably the bearers the paul bearers come to a halt because they have no clue what's going on jesus looks down into the coffin open coffin by the way on a stretcher looks down in the coffin and he says young man i say to you arise now what my favorite part about this story is is in verse 15 luke could have written a dozen different ways to say this man came back to life he could have said the young man came back to life he could have said He fluttered his eyes open like in the Disney movies. He could have said a lot of things, right? But you know what he actually says? In the original, he says, the corpse sat up. That's what he says. Jesus looks into a coffin and says, hey, you, get up. And it did. Okay? The dead man sat up and began to speak. Does anybody know what he said, by the way? Anybody know? I don't know either, but can you imagine, right? Like, was, was it profound? Was it like, where am I? Was he like, I'm super hungry? I don't know. One of the commentaries was like, I don't know what it is, but it would have been interesting. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll ask him, what did you say when you sat up? And <laughs> just so we're clear, the little gasp that went through the crowd when he touched the coffin is chaos now, right? I mean, this girl's laughing and crying at the same time. Aunt Mildred just fainted, right? I mean, this corpse sat up in the middle of these two huge crowds. 
and verse 15 says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now those who had read a lot of the Old Testament would have recognized this miracle that Jesus just did, and they would have thought of another couple stories. They would have thought first of 1 Kings chapter 17, when the prophet Elijah healed the boy, took the child, and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. They also would have thought of 2 Kings chapter 4, when Elisha, the second prophet, did a very similar thing. Now what's interesting, William Hendrickson says, is that there's a difference between what Jesus did and what Elijah and Elisha did. It's this. Note the agonizing struggle of Elijah before the child's soul returned. He cried to the Lord. He stretched himself upon the child three times. He cried to the Lord. More strenuous still, and perhaps longer, is Elisha's struggle. Compare this with Luke 7, and Jesus said, I say to you, get up, and the dead man sat up. There is no conflict, no wrestling. There is simply the word of majesty. The young man is alive and talking. Reason? Jesus is God. Nothing less. And his victory over death is immediate and complete. Jesus is not an Old Testament prophet. He's God. And when he looks into a coffin and says, get up, it happens. And it says he gave him back to his mother. I love that. Because what does it mean? What well, means that he got the young boy up and he walked him over and gave him back to his mother? But, but it means that she lost her son. He gave him back to his mother from the dead. He can do that. And he did do that because his heart went out to this poor woman. Jesus isn't limited by anything, just so we're clear. Put something up, doesn't stop him. And what's the response? Well, the right response. God is glorified. When Jesus compassionately responds, God is glorified. Verse 16, fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Fear gripped them. It's the same fear that came over Zacharias when he was in the temple and the angel showed up. It's the same fear that came on the people when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down by the Holy Spirit for their lies. No one watching thought this was a magic trick. They were convinced that a great prophet has arisen among us, referring to Deuteronomy 18. The prophet, the one that would come, has arisen among us. God has visited his people. Remember that verse from Exodus 3? When God says, I see their suffering, I am aware of their suffering. People said, God has come. He's visited us. Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. And by the way, this is always the right response to miracles. You, you recognize that in, Bible, in the Bible, miracles are for a reason. They are to validate the message of the one who is coming. And so Jesus just did all this teaching, and now He is validating that He can say all those things because He is God. and He performs these miracles. And the right response to miracles is not to say, I don't know, that didn't convince me. The right response is to say, God is amazing. And so they glorify God. And verse 17 says, The report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. And one commentary says, The report hasn't stopped spreading yet. So the application for you and me, do you glorify God when you see his amazing works? Do you praise him and proclaim him for the good things he has done? 
It is our business as God's people to praise and glorify Him when we see His miracles. Say, yeah, but we don't don't have the miracles like that anymore. Oh, we have better miracles. You and me, if we're Christians, are getting to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. I don't even know you all that well. It's a miracle that any of us are saved from our sin. Do we praise and glorify God for that? Now, I want to take a real quick aside before we finish. Because these two encounters together give us a very interesting theological perspective. Okay? These two encounters put together are a fascinating picture of salvation. Track with me for just a minute. In the story of the centurion slave, we see salvation from a human perspective. Okay? We see how the centurion recognized his need. And he came and, and he recognized that he needed something from Jesus. You and I and our salvation came to a point at some point where we said, I am a sinner. I have a problem and I need saving. He came, he, he came and asked. The Bible says in Romans 10.13 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're a Christian, there was a point where you came and you asked God to save you. Now, just like the centurion, you asked in humility and in faith. You see, God doesn't answer prayers when you say, God, please save me because I deserve it. It doesn't happen. He also doesn't say, God, please save me because I hope you can do this. Maybe I'm just kind of banking my luck here. But when we come and we ask God and say, God, I am the only, uh, uh, you are the only way of salvation for me. And when we come and, and we say, God, you are the only option I have, say the word and I will be healed, like the centurion said, God responds. So we recognize our need, we ask with humility and faith, and what happens? He compassionately responds. But then, there's the other story. Why? Well, because if we, we just took that part of salvation and said, okay, we see a need and we ask in humility and faith, somebody out there is going to say, looks like the centurion did the saving. I know Jesus was there, but the centurion kind of, he, he initiated. And they're going to sit there and say, yeah, I mean, I'm saved because God saved me, but I'm saved because I, I wanted to be saved, right? And you're all looking at me like, this guy's got horrible theology. No, I don't. I just like this next encounter. Why? Because the next encounter has nothing to do with anyone's faith. What does it have to do with? It has to do with Jesus seeing our need and His heart going out to us. You see, your soul before Christ intervened in your life is not a centurion among men nobly petitioning for the welfare of others. Okay, That's not what it is. Your soul is as dead as a doornail as this young man in the box. That's your soul before Christ. And yet, at some point, Jesus Christ showed up at the gate of your soul's city, the maker of life, the conqueror of death. He stood at the foot of your spiritual coffin and spoke life into your soul and said, young one, get up. And you know what happened? Your dead soul got up. It did. And now you have life and and you have it abundantly. 2 Corinthians 5 says you are a fundamentally new creation. Because Jesus spoke life into you. You see, the, the point of these stories is not a centurion who, was, who came with a humble, uh, faith-filled request, although that's important. The point of the story is that the Savior had the power to heal a man without even seeing him. Uh, the point of the story is not how humble this, this destitute woman was or how her only son had died and left her alone. 
it's interesting that it's it calls her son her only son. Greek, that's monogenes. An interesting word because it's also used of, of God's monogenes. The only son. The only begotten son of the Father. You see, the point isn't her only son. The point is God's only son. And the fact that when he comes around, salvation from a divine perspective. God sees that you have a need. His compassion goes out to you. And he intervenes in your life and supernaturally turns a dead thing into a living one. That's what happens. You see, this boy's resurrection, all of our salvation experiences is a work entirely and completely of God. Matthew Henry says, The gospel call to all people, and listen to this, to young people particularly, is this. Arise, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light and life. Our theme for the, this evening was when we are at our most helpless, hopeless, desperate, despairing situations, Jesus has compassion on us. The Bible says it a little bit differently. In Romans 5.8 it says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we have nothing left, when we are at the end of our ropes, Jesus intervenes and He has compassion on us. And now, by the way, if you are in Christ, you need to remember that Jesus' heart still goes out to you. Every day, He cares and He knows and He loves you. And often, He prevents lots of horrible things from happening to you because He cares. Matthew Henry says this, and I'll wrap up. Christ has a concern for the mourners, for the miserable, and often prevents them with the blessing of His goodness. What a pleasing idea does this give us of the compassions of the Lord Jesus and the multitude of His tender mercies, which may be very comfortable to us, comforting to us, when at any time we are in sorrow. Let poor widows comfort themselves in their sorrows with this, that Christ pities them and knows their souls in adversity. And if others despise their grief... He does not. Jesus has compassion on us. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for Christ and for His abundant compassion, His tender heart that, that goes out to sinners and sufferers like us. We're so thankful that as we see Jesus interacting with these people, that we see that in our own life, that He intervened and, and He gave us life when we had nothing to offer. And yet, God, we pray that we would respond and we would imitate our Lord, that we would reach out to others and that we would extend compassion and care and service to those around us as a reflection of Your great goodness. We thank You for the time and Your Word. In Your name, Amen.